hi, hello, my creepy lovelies. Welcome back to part two of the Ripper Multisode. Dr. Manhattan's still here. For those of you who don't know, behind the scenes of podcasting, we're still recording this part on the same day. So Because that is how that works sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Um, so we left off... With the murder of Annie Chapman, and now we're going to dive into the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. For those of you who didn't read the intro notes to this episode, we are on Multisode 2 of Jack the Ripper. Um, If you didn't listen to Episode 1 of that, go back and listen to Episode 1. There will be more button pushing from the Coffin Soundbox. Just so you know. I wish you guys all have to upload a photo. Like, some of these pictures are kind of funny. There's a, there's like a happy ghost, and there's like, woo, ghost, and there's like a smiling skeleton, and there's a screaming skeleton, and the witches look the same. I think that's important, though, to represent a happy ghost. Some ghosts are happy, right? That's got to be a thing. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out why one vampire looks like the devil, and the other vampire looks like Nosferatu. Interesting approach. I don't know. I didn't make it. Um, Alright, so we're here, and we're buckling up, because it gets worse. And we're just going to jump right in. Um, I would like to remind everyone who doesn't already know that these murders happened at the same night, but in different locations of Whitechapel. So Elizabeth Stride was found in Duckfield's yard, and Catherine Eddowes was found over in Mitra Square. And in between the two sites, there's a ton of different main and side streets, some churches, and a lot of pubs. Uh, And the two main streets that separate the two places, if I go down the path of Jack being like one dude, we were looking at the map and it doesn't really make sense. So he either had to be like a high-born man or a dude with a fuck ton of money who had somebody he trusted who would keep quiet, who would drive him from the area of location A to location B and change his clothes in his carriage, or Jack the Ripper's more than one person. So, just some food for thought. Or he's a soup. Was a soup. Just saying. Okay. I mean, who, you know, who knows? There have been a lot of weird experimentation back in those days with, you know, alcohol and whiskey and who knows what else. So. All their signs. Yeah. We just finished the boys. Clearly somebody misses it very much. Anyways, moving on. So, Elizabeth Stride was born... Elizabeth Gustauder on November 7th in 1843 in Stora Sweden. I'm assuming I said all of that incorrectly, so I'm apologizing to anybody who's Swedish. She was the second born of four children to farmer parents, and they were raised in the Lutheran faith. And of course, you know, during that time frame, if you're born on a farm, you're going to fucking do farm work. So at the age of 16, she headed into the city of... Gothenburg. My heart wanted to say Gotham, but that's not right. <laughs> to find employment, and shortly after, she got some uh, employment as a domestic worker to a couple, and she remained uh, in their employ until February of 1864, because then she got a better job as a domestic servant in a different city. Elizabeth was also 5'2", dark curly hair. Uh, she had gray eyes. I don't think the eyes matter much 
to Jack as long as he can see the light go out. Oh, Ray eyes them? Yeah. Wow. Why? Wow. Okay. I don't know. That's just what they're reporting. Um, and unlike Annie and Marianne and some of the others, uh, Elizabeth was a sex worker much earlier in life, and her records from Sweden confirm this. So she knew what she was doing. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Um, and in February of 1866, she moved to London. The reports, you know, there's nothing very solid. A lot of reasons are unknown, but some people say, you know, she gave varying reports to friends or people she met. And um, the only thing they can confirm is that it's likely she used the money from her mom's inheritance. You know, her mom passed away, she got a little bit of money, and that's how she got over. Um, excuse me. Elizabeth yearned. Learn, Elizabeth yearned. She yearned for a normal life. Sorry. Uh, Elizabeth learned how to speak English and Yiddish. And for those of you don't who don't know, Yiddish is a Jewish dialect, I think. Is it really? Yeah, ninety-eight percent sure. I would ask Alexa, but she's not in this room. Prefer not to, but thank you, Alexa. I know, she's creepy. Um, but she learned those two languages upon her arrival to London, and support reports state that she was known to have dated a cop in the late 1860s. A lot of people date cops. I don't know why that piece of information was important. Also, before that time, or by that time, like some earlier Ripley victims, she had had issues with children. At least it's reported. Granted, with her... Some of the records are iffy, but it's reported that she actually had a stillborn. Oh, okay. Before I was like, arriving to one. You say she just, had issues well, with children, and she hated children, no, or she? No, <laughs> sorry. To that, but no, it's just it's interesting that there's this commonality with so many of these victims that they were short, they were poor, they ended up in sex work, they had yep, just like the worst luck, if you will, when it came to you know having healthy families or children. So. Mm-hmm. Well, and so on March 7th in 1869, she marries a human called John Stride, a ship's carpenter who's 22 years older than her, and they have no kids. Smart. She probably couldn't if she had a stillborn. Also, 22-year age difference, maybe he can't. Anyway, um, for a long time, they lived really well, and they operated a coffee shop together. I originally wrote ship, but that makes no sense. Uh, but in uh, 1874, things kind of started to fry and fall apart. And in 1875, John had to sell the coffee shop. Uh, in 1877, in March, she Elizabeth ends up like in a workhouse, and it's like they've separated. And they briefly rekindle the marriage in 1881, but it didn't work, and they permanently separated. Permanently separated. Apologize for the weird noises. A few months later, so it's December. 1881, Elizabeth's suffering bronchitis, so she's admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary. She was released on January 4th and then moved to a different common lodging house on Flower and Dean Street. Sorry, I'm saying that because you're going to hear that street a lot. Um, and I put in my note, Marianne also resided, resided at a lodging house in that area, if you recall. John later died of tuberculosis in a different hospital in 1884. And for some reason, she liked to lie and tell everyone that her and John had nine children, two of which had drowned with him in the sinking of the Princess Alice in 1887. Which I think is interesting because it's three years after his death. Yeah, you could argue she had some yeah. mental issues or maybe she was just that desperate to, 
to find a way to like you know make ends meet that she would fabricate to that extent because she she tried to tell some crazy stories it seems well yeah and that's not uncommon for a lot of these victims it could also be that she's trying to justify her lifestyle to people who are not in the lifestyle mm-hmm. so um, she did however have some financial help from the Church of Sweden in London um, from 1885 until she died so maybe that's the story she told them to garner sympathy and to get that kind of money I don't know but uh, most of 1885 to 1888, she spent with her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Michael Kidney, which is always an interesting last name, uh, who was a dock worker, and they frequently had physical and verbal altercations, but they always ended up back together, just like any good domestic violence relationship. Fucking stupid. Um, she at one point filed assault charges, but didn't follow through, so the charges were dropped. And Elizabeth herself had lots of drunken, disorderly charges. So. It's just too bad that Mr. Kidney wasn't also a victim. A lot of these victims were or are, like, it's 1888, they're sex workers, they are considered to be not even fucking human. They're treated like shit. They let these people come in and out. They don't have resources. Like, now there's a lot more resources for people who experience domestic violence. But even then, I can go on and on about this forever. Even if you leave, there's only so much you can do or prove in the stalking laws. Like, you can still be fucked. So it's just, it's a rough time. But I agree. Michael Kidney should have also died. But my list for that is long. We digress. We digress. Um, so we're in 1888. Sorry, I put she in kidney and I giggle a little bit. Um, 1888, they had a fight, September 26th. And as a result of the fight, she did what she normally did. She left where he was staying and went to go stay on 32 Flower and Dean Street. So they separated for a night or two. Uh, Over the next few days, she earned the money by cleaning, which is different. Um, and people who knew her as a cleaning lady said she was like really quiet, but would occasionally like clean people in the local Jewish community. And the day before she was murdered, she cleaned two rooms at the boarding house she was staying at. So, um, the night that she's murdered, she's in all black, a black jacket, black skirt. She's got a red rose as her outfit accent. The report I said was very confusing, so that's how I worded it. If that's wrong, correct me. Maybe I'll correct it. Maybe I'll do what news reporters do and just fucking leave it. Who knows? Um, But she and her friend Elizabeth Tanner ended up going to the Queenshead Pub on Commercial Street. And Elizabeth went back to her own lodging house early and by herself. And most eyewitness accounts of... um, Wait. That's silly because they're both Elizabeth. Please hold that. No, it didn't make sense. Yep. Most eyewitness accounts of Elizabeth Stride's movements later that evening of, uh, you know, late evening, September 29th, early September 30th. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah, okay. Sorry, I can't read my board from here. Shit, I need real glasses. That's not good. 
um, state that she was, you know, in the company of some Johns on in that time frame. And it was said that her first John was a short man with a dark mustache, wearing a morning suit and a bowler hat. That's similar to the hat the man was... Is that your Mr. Robinson's? It's consistent with what we've heard before. <laughs> it is. It's consistent with, you know, a similar hat that was seen on a man. Mr. Burns' hands for yeah. those that are listening and unable to see. Oh, God. And Annie Chapman. And they were seen together at 11 p.m. close to Burner Street. Yes. Well, you know, this murder, I think, is interesting in that there seem to be more supposed eyewitness accounts of her around the time. So mm-hmm. you had multiple people more than ever previously that were like, yeah, saw her with this John mm-hmm. around the same height. We're in these, and, and they all use the term respectable. Uh-huh. So you're not seeing somebody seedy or shady, uh-huh. which I'm sure especially in those times people were like, meh. There's a prostitute with a respectable man. What a shock. Mm-hmm. I would like to say, though, that the bowler hat is very popular in fashion at this time. So it's not... It it would be seen strange now. wasn't strange to them. Yeah. So that it could have been anybody. Um, another witness confirms that that couple was still together, or at least she was with a man matching that description at 11.45. So they've got 45 minutes together. And the witness said that he had seen them kiss and that the man said, you would say anything but your prayers. <clears throat> Which is an interesting thing to say to somebody, but I don't know. Um, at 12.35, PC William Smith saw stride with a man and the man was wearing a felt bowler hat standing opposite of the International Working Men's Educational Club which was a mostly Jewish social club, either social or socialist, I may have gotten the note wrong, um, a little bit further up Burner Street. And the man was carrying an 18-inch long package, but the officer was like, he looks respectable enough, like that, that situation is not suspicious, so he just continued on and on his beat. And between 12.35 and 12.45, a dock worker named James Brown saw Elizabeth with her back to the wall on the corner of Burner Street telling a man in a black coat, no, not tonight, some other night. Um, ultimately, her body was found at 1 a.m. across from Dutfield's yard by Louis Schultz. I mean, everyone in those days had to distinguish names. So I don't know. It's kind of uh, unfair. But he worked at the International Men's yeah. Club, Inter- International Working Men's Educational Club. Holy shit. Uh, and he was driving his horse and cart into the alley when the horse abruptly moved to the left to avoid what looks like a bundle of like clothing lying on the ground. And he tried to like move the object with the whip without getting out of the cart, but he eventually had to get out of the cart to get a better look. And when he got out, he lit a match and he's like, shit, this is a body. Great. He immediately ran into the club to ensure his own wife was safe. And then he went to go get help. And who was that again? His name? Louis Dimschultz. So I think it's poignant that he went to go make sure his own wife was safe. Why his wife was inside the men's club, I don't know. Maybe she also worked there. But it is consistent with some of the many eyewitness accounts, quote unquote, of this one in that you know, people reported commotion. People reported seeing a couple that were outside. Mm-hmm. There was a lot happening seemingly at the time of this one. 
Well, and what's interesting is is a lot of the attendees of the club said they didn't notice anything specifically strange between twelve thirty and twelve fifty. Drunk as shit. Well, yeah. <laughs> but sure, thanks guys. Appreciate your input. Yeah. Um, tell, tell me, you've got Israel Schwartz coming up. Who? Israel Schwartz. No, I think I took him out. If you'd like to talk about it. It's one of the only eyewitness testimonies about this one that's interesting. He didn't speak very much English, but he happened to be right there on that Burner Street area right around 12.45 a.m. So he saw Stride talking to a man, uh, and apparently the man tried to pull her into, like, an alleyway. Mm-hmm. She said no, and he threw her to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then he stopped for a moment, lit a pipe, called her Lipsky. But by this point, Swartz, for whatever reason, just didn't want to be involved, so he kind of just... Well, it's not uncommon for yeah. sex workers to be treated right. like that. Of course, there is that. But, yeah. you know, he basically just kind of tried to, like, stay out of the yeah. way of what was going on. But apparently, later on, he identified her body at the mortuary and was like, yeah, that's who I saw with hmm. this dude. Hmm. Interesting. That's a good ad. I totally took that part yeah. out. Because I have 10,000 pages of notes. Well, but it's interesting because there were so many for this one. I know. There were so many people that claimed to have seen and heard so many things. I'm sure it made the investigation, like, that much more complicated. Well, I think that at this point, Jack, he's accelerating. He's losing his shit. He can't control it. Yeah. He's just fucking out there. So, uh, Frederick William Blackwell was the first doctor on scene, followed by Dr. Phillips about roughly 10 minutes later. And Phillips, his documentation would say that Elizabeth was laying on her side, face to the wall. Her left arm was extended, and she had lozenges, like, in her right hand. But that right arm was, like, over her stomach. Um, Her legs were drawn up like the others. Her body was warm. Her legs were warm, specifically. But the rest of her body was cold. She had a silk handkerchief around her neck, partially torn. Her throat was deeply cut. And the cut was a large, clear incision about six inches in length. And it deviated downwards a bit, like the other incisions of the victim. So he's getting the length more accurate now. Uh, And he cut through the tissue in the neck and severed the carotid All about that left right, actually. Yep. Uh, Blackwell hypothesized that she had been pulled backward by the neckerchief, which we all know she wasn't wearing when she went out, because I gave that very... Distinct description of her all-black outfit with her rose. She didn't have a neckerchief on. She wasn't wearing it. It wasn't hers. Um, And that her throat had been cut from left to right, like the other victims. And the bruising on her body indicated that she was pinned to the ground. So if he had seen her been thrown to the ground, that also could have, you know, resulted in those bruises. Um, During the Inquisition, as we've already stated, a fuck ton of people saw her before 1230 but not after. And a lot of people were not able to provide concrete leads that hadn't already been ruled out or hadn't already, like, you know, had alibis. Um, And many of those who were in the club had left at 12.15 through the alleyway that she was found in, but she wasn't there yet, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Kidney, her on-again, off-again shithead boyfriend, at one point, drunkenly walked into the police station a few days after her body was found, and he had stated, if I was the cop on duty, I would have shot myself. Thanks, bro. We didn't ask for your fucking opinion. Do you want us to solve this, or, like, what are you doing? Um, 
But generally, he was just like a hot mess after her death anyway. So there's that. Um, so for timeline purposes, the murder of Elizabeth is right in the middle of Jack's spree. So the general public is starting to panic. I'd also like to point out that her body didn't have the same level of mutilation as the others, so he may not have had enough time because he's in such close proximity to that club. And um, there are also those that think that Elizabeth's murder is unconnected entirely. So I do think it is possible that Emma Smith's attacker and Elizabeth's murderer are one in the same group if they are not Jack the Ripper. But I digress. Uh, the, the, the ultimate problem with this case is we are not in 1888. There are so many variables. There are so many different things. It wasn't well documented. It's well researched, but everybody's got their own, you know, statements, opinions. There's so many fucking hoaxes. Like, there's so many different ways to take it. And it's also really, really hard to, you know, use DNA from 1888 to make sure it was A, collected properly, B, stored properly the whole time, chain of custody wasn't fucked, and then B, you know, how can we ensure that it's not degraded? So there's just all these different things. Um, <sighs> anyway, uh, Elizabeth Stride was buried on October 6th in 1888 in the East London Cemetery. So now we're going to go to Catherine Eddowes, who was also murdered that same night on September 30th of 1888. Please hold, I have to check a notification from my mother. Hi, Mom. Shout out to you. Uh, <clears throat> okay, Catherine Eddowes. Here we go. Oh, this is, this is going to blow your mind. Catherine was born in Wolverhampton on April 14th, 1842. Do you want to guess how many kids were in her family? Don't look. No? Okay. She was the middle of 12 children. Too many. And I say, well, as middle as child number six can be. I don't know if that's quite middle, but anyway. Um, her dad was a tin plate worker and her mom was a cook over at the Peacock Hotel, which actually sounds like a fun place to say. Her family moved to London after she was born, and her dad took a job with the firm in London. Catherine went to school. She, I think she was the only educated victim out of everybody, like thoroughly educated. Um, her mom died of tuberculosis on November 17th, 1855, and her dad passed uh, two years later. And as a result of this, Catherine and some of her siblings were orphaned into the Bird Monzi workhouse where the, uh, they attended industrial school in an effort to teach them a trade. Um, sorry. Catherine had a job as a tin plate stamper at Old Hall, Old Hall Works in Wolverhampton. And she moved back to Wolverhampton and lived there with her aunt who helped her get that job and was able to you know continue her education a little bit. But unfortunately, within a month of working there, she was fired. Some speculate that she was caught stealing. And of course, you know, this caused an issue between her and her aunt because her aunt helped her get that job, makes her look bad. Um, so Catherine moves to Birmingham where she lives with her uncle Thomas, the shoemaker for a little bit. And she finds a job as a tray polisher. But about four months after that, it doesn't work out. She goes back to Wolverhampton to live with her grandfather. And he, excuse me, her grandfather, 
got her another tin plate stamper job, but she moved back to Birmingham after nine months. And I said, hmm, sus. Very sus. Yeah. Uh, Catherine was five feet tall, but she had auburn hair. So she was a redhead. We have a first redhead here. Um, her friends said that she was a generally happy person, but had a fierce temper. And uh, when she was in Birmingham in 1861, she started a relationship with an ex-soldier out of the 18th Royal Irish Regiment, Mr. Thomas Conway. And they had two children and lived off his military pension. They also sold chapbooks, which is like a small 40-page book. And I think... I think that he wrote some of those himself. They're often like small religious books. They're basically pamphlets. Um, no marriage license, so nothing to indicate that they were legally married. Uh, but she would later get a badly done tattoo of his initials in blue ink over her left forearm. Forearm. So. There's that. Um, in 1868... They moved to London. They have child number three in 1873. While in London, Catherine picks up drinking heavily, and obviously that causes family and marital issues. Uh, her daughter would later state that her parents were living on bad terms because her mom drank a lot and her dad didn't drink. Um, and then in 1870, they started fighting and it became physically violent. And uh, Catherine was often seen with bruises on her face. So by 1880... Catherine left her children and Thomas, and a year later she was living with a whole ass new dude, uh, John Kelly, a fruit salesman. Would you like to guess where they were lodging? Somewhere in the White, white Castle area. Yeah, if you guessed Flower and Dean Street, mm. you would be accurate. Mm. So shortly after they started residing together, she decided to start going by Kate Kelly. And the guy who ran this lodging house said that Catherine, like, rarely drank too much. But court records from 1881, like, told a totally different story. So I think that she didn't drink too much or wasn't apparently drunk when she came back to her boarding house. So she wouldn't get kicked out. Um, and when she first relocated to that area, Catherine started to make money by cleaning and sewing for the Jewish community near Brickland. And occasionally supplemented with sex work. And this couple would occasionally go hot-picking each summer to make some extra cash. Mm -hmm. And hot-picking is, like, exactly what it sounds like. You're picking hops that brewers use to make beer. And in some cases, when Catherine couldn't afford her bed in the lodging house, she would try to borrow money from her sisters or her daughter. And in times that she didn't borrow money or make enough, she slept in the front room of 26 Dorset Street, which was locally known as The Shed. So... September 1888, they're on their way to go do their usual hot picking trip in Kent. They make some friends on the way. On the way back into London, the friends all walk together on foot. I think one of them gave her like a, um, it's like, it's another couple. The female gave her like a flannel shirt and said, hey, it's going to fit your dude better than me. Like do what you want, pawn it, whatever. She ends up pawning it. I can't remember why this is important, but there's a thing. Um, so they're back in London. It's September 27th. They sleep in different lodging houses. So Kelly's over on 52 Flower and Dean Street and Catherine's over at Mill End, Mile End. And the guy who ran Mile End asked Catherine, yeah, where, 
where you been at? Like, usually you're here. Apparently, you know, she regularly stayed there. And she's like, hey, like, I was hot picking, you know. And she's like, I actually, I think I know Jack the Ripper. I might go try to claim that reward. I feel like it's difficult to really emphasize how kind of crazy that actually is. Right. That she's just like, yeah, I think I know who that is. Mm Mm-hmm. So September 28th, the couple had spent all of their hop money and they met over at Cooney's Common Lodge House where they ate breakfast and they got some supplies and they split the last couple of bucks to get two separate beds at two separate lodging houses, which is interesting. And I don't know why they did that, but they did. Um, And now we're on the 29th. So she told her boyfriend, hey, I'm going to go try to borrow money from my kid. Uh, he's like, great, I'm going to go pawn my boots. See you in a bit. And she's like, okay, I'll be back around four. And the lodging guy where her boyfriend was staying, yeah, confirmed, hey, he came back. He had no shoes. He stayed all night. He wasn't there. So I think that it's uh, safe to assume that she somehow got the money because they found her laying drunk on the pavement by 8.30 p.m. surrounded by a small crowd of people. Um, and an officer had tried to like help her up, but she was so drunk. She couldn't even like stand on her own. So he had another officer help him take her to the drunk tank. And she ended up falling asleep in the drunk tank until she was deemed sober enough to take care of herself, which is apparently around 1am. And, um, they asked her like what her name was when they booked her, but she gave like a, a weird name or something like I'm nobody or whatever. Um, Excuse me, but she was sober enough at 1 a.m. So they released her, and they she gave her name as Marianne Kelly of 6 Fashion Street upon release. I don't know why, but she did. Um, and so it's 1 a.m., okay? Elizabeth Stride's already dead. Jack is... He feels like he was interrupted. He didn't get to complete his mutilation. He might be hunting for another victim. If Jack is indeed one person. So Catherine leaves the police station and instead of turning right from the police station, which was the fastest and most direct path back to where she was staying, she turned left. Um, She was last seen alive at 1.35 a.m. by three men who were leaving the Imperial Club in Duke's place on Duke Street. One guy said she was wearing a black bonnet and a jacket and that she had been talking to a medium-billed man with a mustache by Matra Square. And he stated um, he had her, he had his hand on her chest, but like in a non-threatening way. It's like a romantic way, I guess. And one of the other witnesses from the club said that the man was 5'7", wearing a loose-fitting salt-and-pepper jacket with a gray cloth cap, red color neckerchief, and he his overall appearance was similar to a sailor. So we've got that. Yeah. That neckerchief again. What the fuck is up with that? Um, <clears throat> so at 1.44 a.m., Catherine's body. I put Christine's. So I was like, who the fuck is Christine? Cat. I have spent a great many hours researching. So my notes, this is, let me see what page of note this is. 
This is page 17 of 33 notes, and I'm not even done writing this multisode, so bear with my brain, okay? Good context. Yeah. Um, so Catherine's mutilated body was discovered by uh, PC Edward Watkins, who did not previously see her there when he had last passed on his beat at 1.30. So this is what I'm saying. Somebody knew enough to, to scoop her up, kill her, and then place her there before the policeman came back through on his next round. Um, he called for help from the nearby night watchman at the Curly and Tong warehouse nearby. The watchman was like, dude, I didn't see anything. The other night watchman in the area said the same thing. Um, also, another police officer whose beat was close to Metro Square, PC James Harvey, walked down that area at 1.30 and he also didn't see anything. So that's a tight fucking window. Especially considering this is coming off the heels of the mm-hmm. Shride murder. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. George William Sakira and Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown arrived at the crime scene between uh, 1.55 and 2 a.m. And a fragment of her clothing was found at 2.55 a.m. by Golston Street by another officer. And the piece of clothing had fecal matter on it. And he swore it wasn't there on his last round at 2.20 a.m. Um, there was also chalk graffiti right above where he found that piece of clothing that read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Um, which a lot of people speculate implied that a Jewish person had committed the murders. Uh, the wall was documented and then washed, and it was well known that anti-Semitic graffiti was prominent in and around Whitechapel at this time, and they didn't want to start a riot, so they washed it. Um, Catherine's body was on her back, her arms at her side, her palms up, her clothes were drawn above her stomach, and she was totally naked on her thighs. Um, Her left leg lay flat, but her right leg was bent at the knee, sorry, bent at the thigh and the knee, and her bonnet was still on her head, her throat was cut, and she was also wearing a neckerchief. Her intestines were pulled out of her chest, slung over her shoulder, but they were also smeared with fecal matter, which is weird and interesting at the same time. Um, So it's like, not only is he mutilating the bodies, now he's desecrating them, which is a whole other level of... Desecrating every time. Yeah. Um, it gives me two feet. Oh, I'm so sorry. Two feet of intestines were detached and placed at her feet. Her right ear was cut and there was a fuck ton of blood and her body was still warm without rigor mortis having set in yet. She didn't have any bruising. There was no secretion on her thighs and there wasn't like blood splatter in the surrounding area. So they took her back, got her to autopsy, washed her and examined her under better light and they found a fresh bruise on the back of her left hand and some older ones on her shins. Um, Her face was mutilated and cut and the cut was, you know, she had one on her lower left eyelid. Her right eyelid was also cut and there was a deep cut over the bridge of her nose that went all the way down to her jaw and then the cut went all the way to the bones of the face. So it's like... mm, now he's focusing on the face. So my brain wonders, like, did she really know him? And he was pissed? Like, just fucking pissed? Um, the tip of her nose was basically detached. She had a ton of cuts to her face. 
Um, they ruled that she died from the severing of the carotid artery. Her left kidney had been removed, and the doctors concluded again that the individual had an anatomical knowledge, or at least the knowledge and habit of cutting up animals. Okay. So, uh, during the inquest, a lot of people gave their testimony to what they saw or didn't see and heard or didn't hear. Um, they also testified to her character. Per usual, they weren't able to arrest anyone. Um, now, directionally speaking, Mitra Square has three connecting streets. Church Passage, which runs or ran north to east. Mitra Street, which ran south to west. And St. James Place, which ran north to west. Now, we know because Officer Harvey didn't see anybody on his beat on Mitra Street that that wasn't the, the route Jack used to flee or come in or anything. We also know that he would have had to flee via James Street Place because it's towards Gloucester Street, and that's where they found that piece of bloodied fabric with the fecal matter on it. So we we have a directional way that he was going for the first time. Whether or not that means anything, there's so many variables I can go on and on. Um, I also want to say that uh, Gloucester Street is 15 minutes walk to Metro Square and is a... My note's so dumb. I put, is a directly a direct path? Is a direct path to Flower and Dean Street, where Catherine and many other victims lodged. Uh, everybody was staying there, basically. That's right in the middle of all of it. Um, it you know, he may have lived in that area, may have worked in that area. Uh, so, we have... So he has some connection to Flower and Dean Street, or he's got enough time to stalk and watch all of his victims. Um, and before I get to the last two victims, we're going to briefly touch on the postcard and the letter that Jack sent. Um, so the Saucy Jack postcard was a postcard that was sent on October 1st to the Central News Agency. And in the postcard, the writer claims responsibility for the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Um, now, there is a chance that postcards were mailed before the murders, which, you know, the, the murders were widely reported on. Everybody's panicking. Everybody knows almost everything. Um, but there, it, it's a short window for that to be happening. And I don't think... If, if mail is as slow as it is now... There's no fucking way mail was that fast back then. Absolutely not. Um, it was also postmarked 24 hours before the murder, which I think is interesting because a lot of people think that the Saucy Jack postcard was a hoax. Um, I do think that if it was a hoax, somebody had the time, money, and resources to backdate the postcard. So that it was 24 hours before the murder. If it was indeed Jack, it shows that, you know, we've got proof. He knows what he was doing. He was intentional. He had his victims picked out. He had been stalking them. He knew who he was going for. So, uh, a lot of police at the time stated that, you know, this was fabricated by journalists. Uh, 
I think that that's a lot of work to generate additional interest in something that's already widely being reported on. People are, you know, they're fascinated, they're concerned, they're eating it up. Um, so that brings us to October 16th, and we have the From Hell letter. So a package, cube in shape, apparently measuring like three and a half inches, and containing a half-preserved human kidney. Mm. Which was received by the fucking chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, George Lusk. Poor George. So imagine being the guy who's like in charge of keeping everybody safe and catching this bastard. And he's like, aha, I will send you this kidney that I claim to have taken from one of my victims. It's for you. Like. Well, but coming off the heels of that last murder is significant because the kidney was missing. Mm hmm. So the package had a letter attached. And the author of the letter claimed to have fried and eaten the missing kidney half. Classy. And the handwriting was similar in prose and style to the Saucy Jack postcard. And some linguistic experts suggest that the writer was Irish or came from Ireland. I did put here that I would pull up and read the From Hell letter to you guys now. So let me pull that bad boy up. If I can actually read, maybe somebody transcribed it. He had very messy handwriting. Also, Mr. George Lusk was like, kind of sketchy. Okay. So the first letter he got put, and nobody knows, like, if this, this letter was actually something he received from Jack the Ripper. A lot of people think that, like, he was embellishing this shit, which is very possible. So, um, he got a couple of letters. So one said, you know, I write you a letter in black ink as I have no more of the right stuff. I think you are all asleep in Scotland Yard with your bloodhounds as I will show you tomorrow night, Saturday. I'm going to do a double event but not in Whitechapel, got rather too warm there, had to shift. No more till you hear from me again, Jack the Ripper. And then another letter said, Say boss, you seem rather frightened. Guess I'd like to give you fits, but can't stop. Can't stop time enough to let your box of toys play copper games with me, but hope to see you when I don't hurry much. Bye boss. And the, so what's interesting is, is those two letters didn't seem to have anything misspelled. And the from hell letter and the let the, you know, the anti-Semitic message that was on the wall, things were spelled incorrectly. So from hell, Mr. Lusk, Sar, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. To other piece I fried and ate, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. So, it's, it's crazy. Um, they've got, so they've got this letter. They have this package, they have these postcards, and now they have half a human kidney to examine. So they take it to 
Dr. Thomas Horrocks Openshaw at the London Hospital. And, you know, he's like, okay, I think this kidney is human. And it may be from the left side of the body. So it might be hers. But that's all he could really tell. Anything else that you read or see is not verified. It's an embellishment. You know, even people at the time who were on the case were embellishing details of the case for fame. So just, excuse me, keep that in mind. Um, So we've got a lot going on. We are approaching the last two victims and only the next one is considered to be, have been murdered by Jack the Ripper by Ripper experts. So just keep that in mind. Um, And she's by far has it the worst. Um... So there's that. Hi, yes, I see you. Do you need a snuggle? Can you come half up so I can read my notes? Thank you. Okay, good job. So uh, this brings us to Mary Jane Kelly, the youngest of our victims, I think. Hi, yeah, I see you very much in my face. Um, And there's not as much info on her because she lied a lot and, you know, lied about herself. So I, I have what I have. We'll see if Dr. Manhattan is able to provide any additional input over there uh, from his research corner. Working on Okay. So, um, who's a good red dog? Who's a good red dog? Sorry. Uh, she had said that she was born in Limerick, Ireland, you know, maybe 1863-ish. She often claimed her family and parents had disowned her, but she remained close with one sister. She would tell people that her family was um, wealthy and that she was one of nine siblings. Uh, She couldn't read, so that part we can't confirm. But no one can confirm, like, what hair color she had, so that was interesting. So a lot of people have stated that it was red, like auburn hair, or it was dark hair. There seems to be uh, no consistency between one or the other. So just keep that in mind. But for Jack's pattern, I'm just going to assume it was red or dark. Um, She was 5'7 and described as being pretty and slim. She married at the age of 16 in 1879 to a coal miner named Davis, who was killed three years later in a mining accident. I think it was an explosion. Uh, After she moved to Cardiff with a cousin, but there's like no records of her there. So it's assumed that this is when she kind of starts sex work because there's no record of her being in workhouses or anything. So that puts us at uh, 1882. And then in 1884, she moved to London and shortly worked for a tobaccoist in Chelsea before becoming a domestic servant in Spitalfields. And then a year later, she moves to central London. Um, And through her friend, she found work at a high-end brothel in the West End of London. And it's reported that she was one of their most popular girls. And she was, you know, so popular, words, so popular with one client that he invited to whisk her away to France. So she went. But she came back two weeks later. She was like, eh, I didn't like it that much. Yeah, France isn't for everyone. I don't know. Um, But upon her return, she adopted the name of Marie Jeanette. Um, And then in 1885, she starts drinking pretty heavily. Uh, They say that she, you know, what is that face he's doing? Oh. Um, She lived with a few different men up until 1887. 
and she was back in the Spitalfields area where she met 28-year-old Joseph Barnett, who worked as a fish porter at a nearby market. He took her out for a drink. They stayed the night together. And then on their second date, they stayed the night together at a lodging house close to Commercial Street. Uh, By the end of March 1888, they relocated to Miller's Court off Dorset Street. They had been evicted out of a few lodging houses along the way. Mm. And the room that they ended up getting off Dorset Street had once been the back parlor of 26 Dorset Street, which I think is also the address of that front room that people stayed in called The Shed. So there's a lot of overlap in locations here. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, They had some sparse furniture for their 12-foot room and some windows that faced the yard, and the door opened right into a passageway that connected to Miller's Court with Dorset Street, and it was illuminated every night by a gas lamp that was directly opposite of the the house. Um, Drunk one night, Kelly lost her key and broke the window, and so as a repair, they just put his coat up in the window, and they're like, eh, it's fine. Um, But by the end of her life in late 1888, she was reportedly telling people that she was homesick and she wanted to go back to Ireland. And uh, when she was drunk, she would often sing songs of her homeland if she was in a cheery mood. But usually she would just argue and fight with everybody when she was drunk. So um, there's that. Her boyfriend Barnett was fired in 1888 because he was stealing. And as a result, she had to return to, you know, being a sex worker. Um, And as a result of that, she'd often allow other sex workers to crash in their room. And, you know, have a safe place to sleep. Hmm. wonder why that would be a concern. Oh, wait. Yeah. What's crazy is, is he got super fucking pissed about that. So they broke up for... They didn't break up. They stopped staying together. And he left on October 30th and went to go stay somewhere else. But he would come back and see her and bring her money. So I think it's safe to assume that they were either sleeping together and he was paying her for that or they were still dating just staying somewhere separate because he was like i don't want to fucking sleep in a room with a bunch of other sex workers like yeah um so barnett came to see her for the last time of the evening of november 8th between 7 and 8 p.m and at the time she was with her friend maria harvey so he didn't stay too long um he went back to his place of lodging played cards and then fell asleep at 12 30 And uh, Lizzie Albrook, Kelly's neighbor, came by to see her, and she was sober at this point. And she told Lizzie, apparently, whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I have. Um, And Kelly would later be seen drinking with some friends at the Horn of Plenty Pub on Dorset Street. Hey, leave that. That's not for you. And she would eventually return home drunk. And was in the company of a short and stout ginger-haired man, roughly 36 years old, around 11.45. And the man was wearing a black bowler hat and a mustache. A witness said that his face was blotchy and he had a can of beer, which I think is their polite way of saying he was drunk as shit, still carrying his beer. Yeah, he was blotchy. (laughs) That motherfucker. Um, The room above Kelly said that she was singing a violet from Mother's Grave and other songs for a while, but the singing stopped at 1.30, so the lady above her finally got to go to sleep. 
And then uh, on November 9th, an unemployed man, George Hutchinson, who actually knew Kelly, said they met up at 2 a.m. on Flower and Dean Street, and she had asked to borrow money from him. And he said, fuck, dude, I spent all my money. And he was like, I can't help, but we can hang out. And she's like, no, I get fucked. So he, Kelly walked back towards Thrall Street, where she was approached by a man who he thought was of Jewish descent and suspicious. There's that anti-Semitism. Um, he thought the man was suspicious because he was well-dressed and hiding under his hat, but Kelly seemed to know the man. Wouldn't most high-profile men who are coming to see a sex worker be hiding under their hat? Probably in that day and age. Yeah. Do they, do they not do that anymore? I don't know. Okay. We have no experience with that. Um, Hutchinson would later give an insanely detailed description of the man, and he reported that Kelly whined about losing her handkerchief, and the man gave her a wet one. Uh, he also claimed he heard Kelly say, All right, my dear, come along. You will be comfortable. Before she and the man departed. I swear to God, are you fucking kidding me? Is there a mosquito in here? Probably. Ah! <laughs> Stupid. Okay, sorry. Where am I? I can't handle any more fucking mosquito bites. We live in an area of monsoons, and it's just been fucking pain in the ass after pain in the ass. I have, like, 20 bug bites. It's driving me insane. Um, okay, she lost her handkerchief. He gave her a red one. He also claimed that he heard Kelly say, You're going to be comfortable. Let's dip. They went back to her room towards 13 Miller's Court around 2.45. Um, this information was also verified by Alondra's Sarah Lewis. It had also seen them around the same time in the same place. And uh, one of Kelly's neighbors had gone out at 1 a.m. and returned at 3, but she didn't hear or see anything uh, during those times. But she thought she heard somebody leaving Kelly's room at, like, 5.45 a.m. <clears throat> and the woman who lived in the room above Kelly's, Elizabeth Prater, woke up to the faint cry of murder between 3.30 a.m. and 4, but again, didn't react. Everybody hears it. Everybody says it. Nothing is happening. Don't worry. Which is such a strange thing, because it's almost like every time somebody says it, somebody dies. So, like, why wouldn't you listen? But is it a, please don't involve me, I also don't want to die kind of a thing? I don't know. But she also stated that she didn't sleep most of the night because she heard people moving about below her, like, almost all fucking night. So... Uh, in the morning, Mr. John McCarthy, the landlord, was like, yo, people aren't paying rent. Can you, can you go over there? So he sent his assistant, the muscle, Thomas Boyer, to collect rent. Guess who was six weeks behind on the rent? Mm. Mm. Kelly, she owned 29 shillings at that point. So uh, Mr. Boyer went and knocked on her door around 10.45 a.m., but nobody answered. So he tried the door, but it was locked, and he looked through the peephole. I don't know why we do that. We can't see anything through the peephole. Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's like the only option. Um, but he couldn't see anything, so he went to go. He's like, shit, I know that the window pane's broken. I bet I can knock the, the jacket out of it and see what's up. So he pushed aside the jacket to see Kelly's body severely mutilated lying on the bed. And so seeing this, he hauled ass to go tell his boss 
And the boss is like, bro, you're lying. So he came to come see Kelly's room. And he's like, oh, shit, you're not lying. So McCarthy sent him to go tell the police. And it's reported that poor Boyer busts into the, the room of the police station, stammering another one, Jack the Ripper, awful, McCarthy sent me. And Inspector Walter Beck followed him back to the crime scene. And then Walter Beck was like, shit, I need a surgeon. He summoned George Baxter Phillips. And said, this is the smartest thing I've heard this whole fucking investigation. Nobody can enter the yard. Nobody can leave the yard. Everybody fucking stays where they are. But, I mean, he's gone at that point. But it's a good start. Mm. And then he finally says, all right, we have to call Scotland Yard. This is getting out of hand. So he calls Scotland Yard and requests bloodhounds. So... A bunch of other cops and a bunch of Scotland Yard people descend on the house, get to the crime scene between 11.30 and 1 p.m. And as all of these people are coming, a bunch of regular citizens show up because the news is spreading like wildfire, everybody knows. So like a thousand people start to, you know, descend on Dorset Street and the officers are like, this is getting insane. So, um... After they kind of like talked at length that it wouldn't be worth anybody's time and it probably wouldn't lead anywhere to use the bloodhounds, they decided to just bust down the door. <coughs> and when they got into the room, they realized that somebody had lit a fire and it was a pretty big one and it had been fueled by women's clothes. And so one inspector theorized that the murderer had burned the clothes for light because the room wasn't lit very well. Um, so crime scene photographers showed up, um, photographed the room, photographed everything, excuse me, photographed everything, moved her to the mortuary. Her boyfriend, Barnett, came to identify her remains, but he was only able to recognize her by her ear and her eyes. That's how badly mutilated her body was. Um, her landlord, McCarthy, also identified, sorry, also confirmed her identity. And like I said before, her body was the most mutilated out of all Jack's victims. I believe this is because he had time and place to perform his ritual in full. Um, and her body was in such a state that the autopsy took two and a half hours. So, um, <clears throat> they estimated that the desecration to her body took about two hours and that her time of death was between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. So now I want to talk about how we've got doctors and police surgeons saying, yeah, this amount of damage took four to five minutes, and now we are at this vast mutilation, and we're saying, shit, this took two hours. Mm -hmm. So he has all the time in the world. Nobody's coming to help her. Nobody's coming to see her. He can do whatever he wants, and he clearly did. For hours. Hours. Um. Her body was found laying naked in the middle of her bed. Her fingers were clenched and her legs spread wide apart. Her stomach and thighs were removed. And I say stomach and thighs, I think just like the pieces of skin, perhaps. Um, and her stomach cavity was emptied. Her breasts were cut off and her face had just been like hacked up. Like earlier stated, it was, it was difficult to even see any of her features. It was all cut in different directions, up to her cheeks, you know, her nose, her eyebrows, 
all partially removed. Her lips were cut up in some pieces all the way down to her chin. Um, her neck, again, like the other victims, were cut all the way down to the vertebrae. Uh, vertebrae five and six specifically had deep notches in them. And her larynx was cut down to the cartilage in there. So it's it's rough. Yeah, there's photos, but it, it, it it's so bad the photos almost seem unreal. Well, it's like, you know, the lighting and the photography and stuff. It's just hard, to, you know, it's hard. Um, her uterus and kidneys were found under one breast under her head, and her other breast was thrown down by her right foot. Her liver was also between her feet with her intestines by her right side and her spleen on her left. And yeah, the, her skin of her stomach and her thighs were just like on the table. Um, the sheets and the floor under the bed were obviously soaked in blood. There was blood spatter all across the wall by the right side of the bread consi bed, consistent with the slashing of her neck. And the muscle between ribs four, five, and six were like cut through. So that's like a whole new thing. Um, her right thigh was cut down to her bone, and the left thigh was stripped of the skin and also the muscles down to the knee. So he took all the skin out and all the muscles and was like, here is this bone here. Um, they think that she was killed by the slash to the throat that severed her carotid artery. Uh, everything else occurred after. And this is where they said, you know, the, the knife was probably one inch wide and six inches long. But this is what I think is interesting. So they say due to the amount of damage inflicted, they don't think the murderer had any medical knowledge. But I disagree with that because if those body parts and those organs are moved around to such an extent and placed in different pieces, I think he knows well, but especially coming off the last few killings where you almost had like a precision and like sort of an organized approach to it, even though it happened quick. Yeah. It fits. Yeah. Also, her heart was missing. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Um, they opened an inquisition, questioned everyone. Nobody knew anything. Couldn't find a suspect. Nobody was charged. Um, she was laid to rest at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leightonstone. And Thomas Bond, one of the medical examiners who assisted with her autopsy, wrote a report linking her murder to Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, and Catherine Eddowes. He also worked up a profile on Jack and suggested that Jack hang on, was an eccentric loner who's subject to... Random bouts of, oh, sorry, baby, homicidal and erotic mania, and that he had been at heightened arousal when he he mutilated his victims. So just, like, imagine blind rage plus blind arousal. It's like, you need to stop. Okay. Um, just kind of like a crazy thing. Hey, did you feel like you were being left out of this episode? I'm sorry, you're not. We're part of every episode. Yeah. Um, she's the last recognized victim of Jack. And she's the last, like, thoroughly researched victim in the Ripper research. But I have, have one more. And then we will 
stop after that victim before we get into suspect mode because suspect mode is going to be part three of this multisode. Jesus. So, because I don't want every part of this multisode to be 10 hours long. That's just ridiculous. So, um, final victim, Francis Cole was born in South London, September 17th, 1859. But by 1880, she was on her own and working for a local chemist, putting toppers on bottles, which I think is an interesting job. Um, by 1884, she started to supplement her income with sex work. And from 1884 to 1891, she kept ties with her family. Um, so like she would frequently have tea with her sister. And in 1891, she would visit her father in Bird's Monzi workhouse where he was an inmate. So in that period of time, a lot of people aren't jailed for committing crimes. They're sentenced to go work off, you know, their time in a workhouse, just so you know. Um, her dad last saw her on February 6th of 1891, and she said she was, you know, she just left working for the chemist, but she said, don't worry, dad, I'm living in a nice area. Like, it's totally fine. Um, sorry, this part just grosses me out. She met a 53-year-old seaman named James Sadler on February 11th, 1891, and they spent a few days together before they had a big fight, um, like the day before her death, too. So they were staying over in the Spitalfield, so again, right in that area of Whitechapel that is in the realm of Jack's hunting grounds. And on February 13th, she went for a drink. Got super drunk, went back to her lodging house, but she didn't have money for her bed, so they kicked her out. Um, and a few hours went by, and she met up with another sex worker around 1.45 a.m. on Commercial Street. So at this point in time, they are approached by a man. The man tried to go off with her friend. The friend was like, he's sketch, no thank you. So, you know, doing what men did in that time, he punched her friend in the fucking face. And so Coles was like, okay, well, if you're not going to take the money, I'll take it. So she went with him. The man was described as wearing a bowler hat, um, which is not good, as we know in this series. Uh, Constable Ernest Thompson was doing his rounds in the nearby area when he found her body at 2.15 a.m. Um, so it's not a long time again. It's a short window of time at this point. Uh, he swore on his last round 15 minutes before that. So at 2 a.m., he swore... Her body wasn't there yet. So they're all, you know, it's maybe 1.50 when they're approached by this guy. This guy, this cop's round is at 2. His next round's at 2.15, and now there's a body. Um, she was laying in her own blood with her throat slit. Uh, the cop called for more help. More police officers showed up. They felt for her pulse, and apparently it was a faint pulse, but her body, and her body was still warm, so they sent for a doctor. They're like, shit, maybe we can save her. Um, but upon the doctor's arrival, he declared her dead. So whether or not they actually felt her pulse, or they had a surge of adrenaline, are two other things. Hmm. Um, her new boyfriend was obviously a suspect for a minute, but he had been jumped earlier that day, and as the inquest went on, like their case against him fell apart. And he reportedly, like, cheered in court when he was no longer a victim. Which, I mean, I would cheer too. Sorry, no longer a suspect, but, like... Understandable cheering. It's a rough thing to deal with entirely. And then to be accused of it, like, come on. Um, her poor dad had to identify her, so they went and pulled him out of the workhouse. Apparently he was, like, super feeble. 
barely like alive at this point is like a whole thing. Um, but I had to come down and identify her. Thankfully, her body was not mutilated. So um, there is that. There are a few, there's not a few, there's like maybe one to one and a half other victims in 1889. So like Alice McKenzie found July 17th, 1889. But um, the, the cutting on her body was different. So a lot of people think it was a copycat and it wasn't actually Jack the Ripper. So I have not included her here. So, uh, we, we've got all of our victims now, seven total. Fine, fine. Five are the famous official Jack the Ripper victims. We have Emma Smith, April 4th, 1888. Martha Tabram, August 7th, 1888. Marianne slash Polly Nichols, August 31st. Annie Chapman, September 8th. Elizabeth Stride, September 30th. Catherine Edo, September 30th. Mary Jane Kelly, November 9th. And then Francis Cole, February 13th, 1891. So we're, we're done with the victim portion. The next part of the multisode is going to be covering um, Jack the Ripper suspects. And I'm just covering six of the most popular suspects. I'm not covering all of them because there were like 35. So we're heading into part three. Everybody, thank you for being here. Get ready for part three. Uh, Part three might include half of the H.H. Holmes story theory. It depends. There's a lot of notes still. I'm still writing pieces, uh, but I'm doing what I can. Dr. Doctor Manhattan will join me for the rest of these multisodes. Um, so I'll have uh, somebody to talk to, which will be good. And uh, yeah, we'll be here. Please don't forget to uh, like, rate, subscribe, follow, tell your friends. Check out the Instagram. Tell Slinky you love him on the Instagram. I don't know. Um, but that's that. So until the next segment. Oh, goodness. I'll talk to you then. We're going to hit this button. <laughs>